Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. We are back, the three of us, after a two-week delay. Um, I had to travel quite a bit, and uh, so we, but we didn't miss any episodes, so that's good. But you have not heard my introduction in two weeks. <laughs> what a start. How are you guys doing? Good. Yeah. How are you guys? I'm good. I did a lot. Yeah. Like I said, I've been traveling a lot. Not into it. Really driving, not into traveling. Driving up to Portland, right? Well, I flew to Portland and I drove down to LA on successive weekends. And I'm, I don't know. Is it like an old think, man body thing? No, I just don't think that, you know, I'm not okay. I'm, I, I think what it is, is basically, I was explaining this to somebody this morning. It's like, right now I live in the highest percentage of people still wearing masks indoors. Oh, okay. uh, yeah. And that is coupled with the fact that this is probably of every metropolitan area still the lowest major metropolitan area, the lowest rate of coronavirus, right? So it's the highest mask, lowest rate of coronavirus, and the highest social shame assigned to people if you don't wear a mask. <laughs> that I believe. Right. And so that, well, the other two are very real. And so I've basically gotten used to just having to wear a mask everywhere indoors. And mm-hmm. also at the same time, not having to really worry that people around are infected with coronavirus. Yeah. And um, also extremely high vaccinations here as well, as you can imagine. Yeah. And yeah. I got to say, if, I understand this is a bit bubble bought with privilege, but, you know, it, it, we're going to talk about this a lot later. But, you know, it is a very comfortable bubble. And I will find I think that the behavior and some of the rest of the country in terms of like just saying that all this is over it's a little troublesome to me and i understand that saying that makes me sound like a snob but i do think that people should probably you know i don't know we're not are we out of this like i don't want to be pollyannish about it but like you know i have a member of my family because she's not of the age of 12 yet who's not vaccinated i also understand her risk of developing severe symptoms from coronavirus are very low but I also don't, none of us really know what this long haul stuff is, you know? Yeah. And uh, I would rather just not have to risk it, but whatever. The world is the world, it's starting again. How do you yeah. guys feel? I, I don't know if it's gonna keep starting though. I mean, they, the government or a lot, uh, well, California specifically, right? Said that we have to go back to putting on masks. Well, LA did. Yeah, LA. LA. Did. Yeah. Philadelphia, they took the mask right off. It was very stark. Um, I don't know if I want to admit this, but you know, I joined a gym right before the mask mandate ended, and everyone was wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. The day after the mandate was over, I haven't like seen masks since, and it's mm. I've been keeping a mask on, you know, unless I'm like, you know, in an empty room. But um, yeah, that was pretty stark because it's a gym. You know, it's like everyone is heavily breathing all the yeah. time and inhaling and exhaling. So that was a bit um, surprising. Because this is, you know, a part of Philly where people have more or less been pretty good about COVID and masking and all that stuff. So did you did you go ahead and just not take off your mask too? I've been, uh, no, I've been, I kept it on. Oh, okay. um, but it, it really sucks to lift weights with a mask on. <laughs> yeah. And then I, you know, you know, originally I was going to do like this whole like elaborate like water bottles, like straw system, but I eventually just <laughs> What's that? You, you know, so I don't actually have to take the mask off and just like, like oh, drink oh, from a straw underneath yeah. my mask. Oh. Like, That's like some April 2020s shit. Yeah, exactly. well, I think you can take this. Yeah, I think. You yeah, can yeah. Take this. At this point, I'm like, as long as drink there's 20 water. feet of space around me. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I have this sense that basically, I think that the vaccinations are definitely uh, preventing people, et cetera. Obviously, that's the science of it. But, um, you know, there are in areas that seem to be testing a lot. There do seem to be more breakthrough infections. Now, does it matter? No, it doesn't matter unless you're in close proximity with somebody who's unvaccinated, right? Because most likely you're going to be fine. And almost certainly you won't even go get tested for coronavirus if you have a breakthrough infection because you won't notice that you have a breakthrough infection. Yeah. But we still have large percentages of the population in every city. Not so much here, but, you know, obviously during in the South and red states, as everybody seems to be screaming about that are unvaccinated. And I don't know. I don't know if it's uh, good for... I don't know. I guess I just my main point about this is just that it really is not any skin off my back to um, wear a mask indoors. And I find myself both thinking like, oh, well, whatever. I'm not going to tell people what to do, but maybe I'll just sit in my bubble for a while, you know, (laughs) and not go anywhere else. Because it's I just was like, I don't. You just felt uncomfortable. I I feel like in Portland, Tacoma, that. Seattle, this corridor, it's fairly maskless at this point, but it also has like a 70, 75% vaccination yeah, rate. Yeah, that's crazy. And I don't know. I mean, there's also obviously a lot of time spent outdoors, but certainly in all the restaurants and grocery stores and things now, people are essentially unmasked. Right. Yeah. Um, I also went to a movie, <laughs> which was like a fairly crowded movie theater with like 5% masking. I don't know. Maybe I've been a little too careless. Now... I think in the last week I've been wearing my mask a lot more. Just I reading just don't about the feel variant. any liberation for not wearing it. I thought I would, but I it's don't. Ve- really? I so I feel like, none. Having yeah. taught with a mask on in person for two semesters and just like I don't know, it was it is it's extremely uncomfortable to work in it and to like function yeah. in it. And that's like for very relaxed white collar labor. Obviously, like I yeah. feel much better not having one. I, might, I, I mean, might I, but that has nothing to do with like being in a movie theater or something like that, right? I mean, unless you're no, but I'm about, talking like, about the physical discomfort. relief and comfort of it. Like it is, un- it's uncomfortable. So you do no, not. I don't like, find it physically. I find I it physically uncomfortable. Yeah. You didn't different get strokes, and different popcorn. forms. What? <clears throat> Tammy didn't get snacks. I didn't, and get, popcorn. Sna- <laughs> I didn't get snacks and popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> I wore um, a mask for a lot of the movie. Oh my anyway, god! I would never. I mean, I feel like Jay and I have very different comfort. I don't like to go to the movie theater in general. Anyway, what's the, what's the oh, point? it was so lovely to. I um, loved it. Yeah, just sitting. In, the, the 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 problem I have with movie theaters generally is that you can't leave, or it's harder to leave. You know, and generally <laughs> with effort. Twenty-five minutes of a movie. No, because you usually go with somebody, and it's rude to just be like, "I'm out of here." Why would you want to <laughs> leave? You mean if the movie is bad? Most movies or you are get terrible, wrestling? and I don't want to. Oh. And I'm mostly out after twenty-five minutes. You know. Oh. <laughs> this movie was really good. <laughs> what movie was it? It was the new Fast Love movie, Summer of Soul. Oh, I saw that on um, what's it called on Hulu. Oh, okay. It was yeah, great in the theater it. as like a comeback film because it's basically like going to a concert of the greatest musicians. <laughs> right. Ever. Right. It was and, an interesting. I I yeah. thought it was a very good documentary. It's really well done. And I was a little yeah. bit like I had this thing where I there's something like you could tell that the monitors on the stage were kind of not working. For, maybe it was just the for time. For the acts. No, just like the band was always off a half beat, you know. And it was driving like me crazy. Like in the theater you were watching. 
No, no in, the who? 68 concert. No, in the, uh, at the concert. <laughs> the actual know? captured music. And you can actually see that oh. musicians kind of struggling with it, you know, but um, I don't know. It was like some sort of very mild. Maybe I'm wrong. It's not I like a, I'm not that. like a synesthesia person where like I'm <laughs> super sensitive to that type of stuff. But um, I noticed it. It was good. Hmm. I felt a little bit of indie uh jealousy because now everybody was fa- is going to fawn over Mavis Staples and I was like that was my thing <laughs> now you won't. you were anyway. the first no. <laughs> I was not the first <laughs> nor do I feel any ownership over it but you know I was just like oh well at least everyone's going to listen anyway we have a lot to talk about um we are going to talk about uh, the first thing we're going to talk about today is something I don't know there's a lot of international stories in the news right now and I find it interesting in the sense that I we can talk about this a bit but Tammy like what what did you want to talk about internationally today yeah well, Andy and I were looking into this a little bit we've been reading about Haiti and Cuba um, I've been specifically following the Haitian situation just because it, it's been so dramatic. So basically what we have in the Caribbean right now is Haiti recently had an assassination of its president who is whose legitimacy already was in question. And there's been basically like a political vacuum in Haiti for a few years. Um, and, and so the question of like who assassinated him and what is what are what is Haiti to do and like how can it recover, you know, some form of like political stability is a question. And then at the same time, basically in the same week, there have been these massive, I think like in, essentially like unprecedented protests in Cuba against the government and against the poverty and despair that people are facing with regards to food, electricity shortages, all these things that Haiti is also facing. Um, and again, a question of like, what is the international community to do? What is what is the legitimacy of the current president, et cetera? And so, um, you know, I think I like with the Haitian situation, I've been thinking about a lot of things that I think are familiar to people who listen to our pod who maybe are more Asianists, which is just like, what does it mean for, you know, small and weaker countries when, you know, they're basically like in a hemisphere that's been dominated by a superpower? You know, what kind of right. civil society, like, we, we talk a lot about solidarity and people-based power on the show and like not giving into states, right? But what does that actually mean when you have like an incredibly weak state infrastructure and you've always been at the mercy of these global superpowers? And I think right, right now Biden is in a position where he has a lot of pressure on the left not to just fall back into the same imperial patterns. But what, what do you mean by do? the left there? Like, do you yeah, mean like so... the, the, do you mean like the left or do you mean like the Democrats in power? No, I mean the left. So right. I, I mean, so what do you I... think that I, that is a question I have, which is just like, to what extent do the people? I, I've seen a lot of people, yeah, arguing against intervention, but mm-hmm. you know, I find that those people generally don't have too much power, as we all know. Right? Yeah. So, well, I'd be curious what you guys think. I mean, obviously, he has tried to recover like whatever the quote unquote dignity of the State Department and reconstitute the government as it was under the Obama administration. And so that's like the democratic or liberal impulse. But I also think that there is a sort of like Bernie-ish left influence where, you know, certain people in the State Department are trying to respond to some of these critiques of U.S. empire, especially coming out of this period where we ourselves are vulnerable. So, you know, I wouldn't say that that is like the dominant strain of the Biden State Department, but I think it's something that he's thinking about and that he knows that politically could make him vulnerable in the future. Um, I think also like just extending that from like Afghanistan and stuff, right? Like he's in a position where he's having to reevaluate, like what are these like Samantha Power Obama objectives and like what do we do now? So, you know, the question of like, what are they going to do in Haiti? It seems like as of this morning, 
the power struggle between like the former PM and the current appointed PM prime minister has been resolved in favor of the appointed the guy who was appointed right before the president was killed. And that was basically like a US UN decision, you know, so are we just playing these games again? So I just wanted to bring it to our podcast, because I think it's something like we our community in the podcast cares a lot about, you know, but we, we are also not delusional just thinking that like, sure, Haiti and Cuba are like states that are okay and can take care of themselves completely in the sense that like no state can take care of itself. Like we're all interconnected also. Right. So what is this sort of good leftist to do about this? Andy, what do you think as a good leftist? Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's at least half right. Um, you're no, the, the good part of the yeah. left. Yeah. I'll leave it up it to you guys to decide. <laughs> I'm going with 40% correct. <laughs> distributed across the two. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's humbling because, you know, you don't, you know, obviously, I, we, no, I don't know if any of us know that much about this part of the world. I think it sounds like Tammy has been focused on it more. Um, one would like, I would like to know more about it, but in terms of like the sort of analogous thinking you know that tammy kind of brought up it i think it raises a lot of the same questions that get raised all the time in terms of like u.s foreign policy in asia in terms of there are kind of extremes right there one extreme is to say the 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 mainstream uh way to talk about these places is like well if they have problems it's you know their own fault it's their own fault their own culture their own people etc the reaction by the left would be like no it's completely the fault of u.s imperialism and intervention from the outside and then, you know, the real answer is something like it's a complex mix of both. Um, I think <clears throat> another thing that was um, interesting that was brought up, and this is by um, a scholar of Cuba who's part of the Cuban diaspora, and we'll put in links um, in the show notes afterwards. She, is, she was saying that, you know, what's going on in Cuba is hard for people in the U.S. left to process because the U.S. left really romanticizes Cuba. Mm-hmm. I think to a much smaller or to pro, to a different degree, perhaps with overlap, there's also a romanticization of Haiti, right, in the Haitian Revolution and the role that has Black played Jacobins. in it. Right. You think yeah. so? And leftist thinking. I feel like that's new. I think there's think? a, I think it's translated into a sort of impulsive anti-imperialism, which I I'm agree. not disagreeing with, of course, but I think there's a sort of, knee-jerk or instantaneous impulse to say like before even figuring out what's going on in Haiti or Cuba or learning more about the situation the impulse is to say like this is the fault of the United States and the United States should uh stay out right and maybe that's correct right but I do well, think that there's yeah, a, yeah I agree yeah. Okay. and I think there's well, a sort of because it's like two revolution Jacobin. yeah it's two revolutionary Right. Uh, states. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think the, the Black Jacobins CLR James thing is much more like romanticized and influential in maybe like the UK than the US. But like, I do oh, think okay. it has right. a transnational influence or in the Toussaint, imagination, at least. Louverture, exactly. Right, right, right. Which I wrote, you know, all these books came out last a couple of years ago. Oh, right. 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 Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I read one of them. It was, uh, it was good. It was actually very interesting to read, uh, yeah. you know, to learn. But yeah. the book itself was like, almost impenetrably <laughs> yeah no it's it's like i romance. won't say which book it was to yeah, not insult the author but man i just couldn't I like, i'll ask you about it so i think I, I think i know what it is uh oh. no like romance language departments who can no longer study old white people have turned to the european colonies <laughs> as the place to put academic <laughs> what is it red pill and he's coming out <laughs> no I'm, I'm just i'm just objective observation about the academy yeah, now that uh, when they're not teaching critical race theory they're just talking about Tucson Haitian, yeah. and, and the Haitian revolution um 
I mean, I think it's a good thing too. What about the white people? What if I just say it's good though? (laughs) Right, right. No, no, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Anyway, but um, yeah, at least the uncomfortable questions, you know, about like, um, you know, I was like, so for instance, I was reading about Haiti from um, an author who places themselves within this trend within academia, which I'm sure many of you all have heard of this sort of thing called decolonialism or anti-colonial perspectives, decolonial perspectives, which are very much about like, um, championing and promoting the sort of sovereignty or autonomy of a people and not even using European perspectives to understand a place and so on. And I think that's tempting, but I also think it is, um, you know, I think like Tammy was just saying, it's a little bit at odds with the reality of the situation, which isn't just, again, not to justify further intervention, but just to say, like, if you look at the history of Haiti and Cuba, these are small island countries that have been kind of bandied about between European powers and the mm-hmm. USSR, Venezuela, United States, and so on and so forth. So to, <clears throat> so it's a little, um, I, I mean, I don't know, you know, I don't even know if, if it's our right to even have an opinion about what should happen or what the United States should be doing there, you know, like maybe that's the real issue in the, in the first place. Mm-hmm. But as an observer, it does, it, it does kind of seem to me like it's a fallacy to say like, well, these places should just, um, these places have all the resources on their own. Um, to, okay, so there is to a deal quote with, to that to deal with all this stuff, you know, without any sort of international, I don't know, cooperation or action on some yeah, on some level, right? Answer. Yeah. The in the Times, um, right? There is a the Times wrote a piece, and there's a quote in it from uh, Siobhan Jean Baptiste, who is the leader of Seeing Eye to Eye, a civil society group that represents more than one million Haitians in the countryside, right? And he says he's. He's upset because he's talking about how, like, the American diplomats basically, after the assassination, as you can imagine, right, uh, were going on and just being, this is what you got to do, you know, Um, as if they were the ones, like, you know, that's a very American impulse and a very imperialist impulse to basically just be like, look, uh, we know what to do. This is what you got to do, as if they're your father, you know, or as if they are, like, the person who is, like, the managing the team or something like that right like it's a very paternalistic attitude to go and but his quote is that we need the accompaniment of a lot of countries but we can't accept that they make decisions in our place mm-hmm. right so is that what you that's sort of what you're talking about right that, yeah. that one needs to understand that some form of international cooperation must happen that we shouldn't succumb to sort of a doctrinaire idea that uh being anti-imperialist means that hey you know, cool. You guys figure it out, and we're not going to do anything, <laughs> right. right? And it's uh, not isolationism, right? 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 And I do agree that there's many on the left who, right now, confuse the two, right? Yeah. And um, I do think that there is a romanticism about Cuba that I think is justified in the sense that there's so much anti-Cuba stuff that goes on, right? But at the same time, like you know, like Michael Moore just being like like going to Cuba and being like doctors, healthcare, everything. <laughs> right. like, it's a little silly, right? Cause Cuba <laughs> right. obviously has a lot of problems. Um, but, you know, caused uh, by us foreign policy, we can, right. You know, Many of yeah. which are caused by us foreign policy and the embargo and everything like that. And so I don't know. I, I think that, um, a strict isolationist view is not particularly helpful, but I don't know, like Tammy, I, the thing that was striking to me when you said that the pressure is coming from the left, I'm not sure the pressure is coming just from the left. I actually think that like the thing that the Biden administration has to deal with, and it'll be very interesting to see how they deal with, is that 
basically foreign intervention is massively unpopular across the board it's true you know it's yeah. very unpopular with the right as well and so like you know that was half of what trump was doing that's why people like glenn greenwald sometimes are like can sound kind of trumpy yeah. right? for other, re the other reasons as well but the idea that like you know isolationism is now a right-wing type of idea like that's also pressure on a wide scale large large-scale foreign intervention here, right? And so I think well, the Biden administration that, is doing that. Is yeah, sort of I hear you. I mean, I think the polling definitely shows that among ordinary people. The problem with that is, like, the way that the right-wing and conservatives in America have developed is that the right-wing actually does support foreign intervention because it's so bound up with the corporations that are in their pocket, right? So they want the Lockheed Martin and Boeing contracts, you know? And so I don't think we can really say that the political pressure from the right against intervention is there in the way that it used to if you credit a certain history that that says, yes, there was a kind of actually committed conservative. Oh, sure, I agree. Right? I agree. I mean, so I, I think, think that's the yeah. problem, you know? And I, I mean, think, I think that's also true of the left, too, or of liberals Liberals, well. certainly, yeah. Yeah, that's, and that that's, the Democrats, that they don't, the people who are in power here don't really care about what their constituents are saying about it. I totally agree with that. But I think it's sort of a bipartisan, you know, we don't care what our constituents think because the, because the anti-intervention attitude is actually somewhat bipartisan at this point. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, and that, that is striking again, because I, I think you would say like Afghanistan and Iraq are the turning points. Um, it seems like in the 90s, Clintonism, and which is where a lot of the stuff um, where U.S. intervention to Haiti was really like the, those events happened was during Clinton's administration. That was very normalized, <clears throat> you know, like the Balkans, um, you know, all sorts of parts of the world were like all open game for the United States. Mm -hmm. It does. And, you know, like Clinton, Hillary Clinton famously lost like two elections, basically on partially on the issue of her voting for the Iraq war, you know, so but, but from liberals and from the right. So that does seem like to, it does seem like it's a notable shift, you know, in terms of where we are in 2021 yeah. versus the previous mm. decade and before. Um, and I was thinking, but just to kind of also kind of flesh out this point about like the interconnectedness of these places, right? Like what, like what Tammy was saying before, I think if you were to imagine like a ideal case scenario for Haiti and for Cuba as strong, sovereign, kind of can do things on their own, island countries they're so small and they're given the location of where they are they would necessarily probably have to be um sort of export-based economies that are in partnership and selling stuff to the united states or selling stuff to the rest of the world you know preferably well, on their own terms tourism right? yeah yeah or tourism and in a sense that is very similar to a lot of small asian countries also that right are never really sovereign right and they always yeah. kind of have china or the united states or some other major power kind of helping to call the shots um even when even in the best case scenario yeah. so I, I, I think that's kind of like to me that's sort of like the from the political economic angle it, it kind of makes a sort of anti-colonial decolonial perspective to me seem a little bit um a little bit naive and kind of ignoring ignoring that if that makes sense mm -hmm. and i think also both of them are you know sort of climate harbinger stories right because also the colonialism and resource extraction in these areas has also led to a sort of degradation to the point where like like with Haiti like it isn't an accident that there's these repeated hurricanes and earthquakes and all of this sort of natural right. disaster that's been piled upon the country that doesn't have like a sort of manufacturing or other sort of you know services infrastructure and I mean honestly the export economy for those two countries has in large part been a kind of brain drain oriented export yeah. economy which is sending talent abroad yeah and other and money abroad you know and so it's 
it's so overwhelming to think about and I feel yeah just I feel helpless honestly like reading about this stuff but I have to think also that you know just by voicing some of this support like for instance over the weekends like there has been this group of like Haitian civil society organizations has been trying to organize as the prospect I think and some other publications have highlighted and they were trying to figure out an interim government so that this thing right. wouldn't happen where the U.S. and the U.N. would just be like, okay, this is who's going to be in power. Then you're going to have a showcase election. Then you're going to do X, Y, and Z, just like the World Bank has always dictated you'll do, right? Um, and they've been there, again, feeling disempowered by that. So I think it's, you know, it's incumbent on people like us to say, like, well, no, actually, there are these kind of, like, human infrastructures there that have ideas, you know, for their future development. Yeah. I mean, I was kind of surprised in that New York Times article that, you know, Jay was quoting, like, it actually did magnify those yeah, voices of, of those civil society groups. So, yeah. you know, if you, again, if you think of the New York Times as sort of the barometer for a lot of Seriously. liberal liberal consensus, right? It does seem like <clears throat> there's a lot of discomfort with the United States just directly intervening. Like, I think direct intervention yeah. is quote unquote off the table. I don't know what that would mean, like not military, but uh, well, yeah, maybe a military intervention. I That's off military, the table, yeah. right? But indirect intervention is still, you know, perfectly perfectly legal, perfectly normal. Right. Yeah, it was a good um, article. It wasn't just like basically somebody playing risk. Yeah. You know? exactly. And like being like, here's the shuffles and this is what the big thinkers think, you know, yeah. um, which is generally how these things get covered everywhere, you know. It, and um, I think it's just because it's probably easier to understand in some ways. But it also seems incredibly somewhat irrelevant at this point, right, because um, – there's only one real option, which is the one that Tammy outlined, being like, this is what the U.S. and the U.N. think, and this is what the World Bank says to do. Right. And it's either that or it's like, <laughs> you know, 5,000 other solutions. Do you know what I mean? So, like, uh, I don't know. It's almost a binary. Um, and Or it feels like a binary, I think, if, if you're tasked with presenting this to a public who doesn't know that much about it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this group, I guess it's called CORE, C-O-R-E. I don't know if it's an acronym, but it's like the United States, <clears throat> EU, and other kind of rich countries who are kind of the advisors, quote unquote. You know, I think I think there was hope by the civil society groups that they would listen to them at the very least. Like they, um, and it seems like the people who is claiming the, the there have been several individuals who have claimed the mantle of, you know, interim prime minister since two weeks ago when this happened. Yeah. And so it's actually like kind of head spinning to kind of follow all the developments. Right. I, I, I almost kind of wonder if there were enough protests, if there was enough pushback, those, the you know, it's not, it wouldn't be democratic, but it would be like maybe that core group could, would be persuaded to listen to some of the local civil society groups. Um, it doesn't you, seem necessarily set in stone to me, reading the article. Tammy, are you concerned yeah. in terms of uh, Cuba and a YouTube because you're a scholar yeah. of communism? <laughs> but, um, you know, like the, the, Biden's press secretary, whose name I keep forgetting. This is like a Lincoln? this is like a good barometer. <laughs> oh, that was Jensaki, yeah, yeah. Jensaki, yeah. That's a very good parameter of like, uh, you know, the sort of relief that people feel when they don't have to watch. <laughs> yeah. every... <laughs> I could have told you every single Trump press secretary in my oh, opinions God. about it. You know, Sarah Huckabee Sanders was the best one. I think if you <laughs> if you're thinking in a totally you know, uh, if you think in a totally valueless system. She was like the yes, most. Yes, at achieving yeah. his aims, definitely. Right, right. Yeah. And she was like, she reflected his attitude the best. 
and her That's contempt for reporters was the funniest. <laughs> she just, she just like the TV hit nothing. Value. <laughs> oh yeah, the TV value was great. I was just like, man, she just takes, you know, she just has no respect at all, and is gonna is not even gonna pretend. You know, she's just gonna be hostile the whole time, and kind of unflappable. You know. Feminist icon, sir. Oh my god, <laughs> is what I'm saying. Um, that's a joke. I'm sorry. Um, are you? Well, Jen Psaki said, uh, you know, she was like, communism is a failed ideology, you know. And she said it sounded like she was almost like a, you know, like when you got got, got in arguments when you were younger. You're like, well, what about communism? And then some <laughs> dude would always stand up. It's or, never worked. Hey, like, listen, Stalin, you know, Grimes actually said something like this on TikTok recently. <laughs> yeah, because she like had to, I guess her high school yearbook quote was something from Jason, Joseph Stalin or something like that. And she oh. had to explain it. That's and weird. she was basically was like, communism is bad. Stalin, like, you know, like killed like 10 million people and stuff. You know, she sounded like Grimes arguing with young Andy. Let's put it that <laughs> way. Um, are you concerned at all? Like, do you, do you think that that's a signal at all, especially when it comes to Cuba? That, that in particular, that framing didn't really, I mean, it bothers me, but it didn't, I guess, surprise me or to me indicate any sort of like action attached to it because it's so like banal and normal for us to say, like for the U.S. administration to say things like that. Right. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's, maybe I'm reading it too softly. I just didn't, I feel like that's like a thing they feel like they have to say. Andy, I don't know. Did well, you think what, that, like, you what is the U.S. alarmed by it? The, well, is that the one that's where they called it a failed state? They called Cuba failed state. I Communism right. as a yeah failed ideology, failed form. Okay, um, I mean, like the United, the current situation is basically the United States with this embargo is you know really draining and, and starving the island of a lot of necessary resources. But they wouldn't, they don't, they're not in the position to. It would be such a radical move for them to do what they've done in Haiti or you know by extension like Venezuela, right, where they kind of like pick the person they want instead. Um, you know they would have to they're just so far away from that they're still in this very hostile have this very hostile policy towards cuba um so it, it sounds like yeah i think they're i don't know it just sounds like they're just kind of using it as another like uh victory lap for capitalism i guess the the interesting thing is you know th- and i mentioned this earlier this is the article by um odette casamayor cisneros who was saying as a cuban diaspora she thinks like the communism phrase framing you know the communism framing blinkers mainstream liberals and 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 right-wing people right right it's communism is evil but it's also blinkering leftists right because they see like the government is communist therefore it must be good and she was saying and this might be like a useful kind of alternative or or, or starting point for us to think is as a cuban diaspora she is actually very mad at the cuban government and and even if she is a leftist and a Marxist and all that stuff, right, she you have to call the government out for what it is and what it's doing to its own people. They're repressing people. They cut off the internet. They cut off communications. You know, people have been, you know, are missing as a result of these protests. Um, and this echoes, I think, you know, I, I have a friend who's from Venezuela who's kind of said similar things about how Chavez was very much romanticized by the U.S. left, but as a oh, Venezuelan yeah. citizen or diaspora, she was very critical of her own government and you know the analogies with East Asia are pretty obvious right where definitely you can be and critical the Soviet of Union yeah right and <laughs> you can be critical of governments that are ostensibly or putatively socialist communists because they're governments and governments do bad things typically do bad mm-hmm. things to stay in the power and that should be on the table for 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 
internationalist thinkers or people who think about like think, think about stuff in terms of class um, yeah. and in terms of economic issues and not just in terms of uh, labeling governments good governments and bad governments. Um, totally. So you know, so you know, Cisneros was saying like for her that it's not really about choosing between the Cuban government and the U.S. government. It's really about choosing solidarity with her family or solidarity with her people, um, right. like everyday people. Um, and I don't know. I found that kind of resonant, just you know, because of all the conversations we've had about East Asia. But it, again, it kind of you kind of wind up in the same sort of cul-de-sac of all right, that's great, but like you know, neither this government or that government. Uh, where else? Where do you go from there? Because none yeah. of us is really in government, and none of us is really. And we're uh, not anarchists, right? Um, but you know, she's well, anymore. Are... <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's the? Uh, here's a here's a dumb question. Yeah. Why do you think that there is not the same romanticism about North Korea? It's <laughs> a good question. Sorry, is that, um... No, I'm serious. You know, yeah. that's a good well, question. okay, so there are tank, there are North Korean tankies who do, but, exercise, but not, but, but not at the same, scale. not at the same scale. Certainly, yeah. I mean, I think it's. So, so my take on this is actually because the information flow out of North Korea is very limited and the lived reality has been punctuated more by these reports of like famine and stuff. There isn't a sort of like showcase success story that there is in certain of the Cuban context. So like, I think you mentioned like Michael Moore and like medicine, like there are a few of these sort of Cuban projects that they've been able to kind of sell as like ideas to like justify the state. And what is that in North Korea? You know, I, that doesn't, I mean, maybe uh, lithium mining, right? Isn't that their big lithium thing? mine? Yeah, to some extent, but like that doesn't have the same sort of socialist, like, right, <laughs> you know, or like they, they're really good at making like monumental statues. That's what they, one right. of their main export commodities right. to like Africa, obviously hacking. Um, but, you know, so I think to, to my mind, there aren't these sort of like symbolic projects that have been as resonant. And also they're not as good at propaganda. Well, that was what I was going to say. Like, I don't think that the agitprop that comes out of North Korea is going to be particularly romanticized by a Western viewer. I've watched some of these television shows, and, um, you know, they're easy to make fun of, and there's not really much there that, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, there's also not that many people who go there and come back to talk about it, you know? Right, like, right. And so a lot of... They didn't house Asada Shakur or anything. I was like going to say, right. yeah, yeah, all of these sort right. of like revolutionary travel exchanges with Cuba and stuff builds up that whole... Yeah, it's just Dennis Rodman who... <laughs> <laughs> Dennis Rodman and a bunch of professors. Right, Dennis Rodman and like... <laughs> yeah, exactly. 11 professors. Fellow <laughs> professors. I, you know, I think like, you know, Seth Rogen made that movie... Right? Oh God! Yeah, and like Seth Rogen, I also assume would have like a Che Guevara poster at some point in his life, right? So like to the, to the sort of like Seth Rogen, white stoner type, you know, there is a romantic, there is an appeal to romanticize right. Cuba right. as socialist, even though at the very same moment it was having its socialist high point was also North Korea's high point, right? 60s, 70s. Right. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, so why why does North Korea like this punchline? Um, I mean, when you guys see like that Seth Rogen movie or like 30 Rock make fun I didn't watch it. of North Korea? Well, whatever, advertisements for it. Is there a part of you yeah. that's offended? Eh, not really. The only time I was offended by a Kim Jong-un impression was when the Capitol Steps did it. And I was like, do you remember the Capitol Steps? Do you know who yeah. they are? Oh, my yeah. God. They're like this uh, acapella that, group. I was going to say, DC. it's the acapella yeah. group. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the guy was playing piano. And, and they do like, no, that's, uh, that's the other name? guy who, um, Mark... Uh, I used to have him as my Twitter app. <laughs> blanked on his last name, but um, <laughs> that guy's fine. 
The Gavinal Staffs are like an acapella group that do like political satire. Oh my god, and that sounds atrocious. There was a period atrocious. of time where I was like, I I thought of. I don't know. I just thought it was a funny Twitter bit to pretend that I liked the Capitol Steps. And so then I had to watch some of their stuff. And they had a very, very racist uh, mm. Kim Jong-un thing. And the only reason why I was offended by that one and not the other ones, like Dirty Rock, is because it was like so... It was in the context of them just being so bad, you know? Mm. Just like, <laughs> you can't be that bad at singing and writing songs and being funny and also be racist, you know? You have to... If you were amazing singers, I would let this one pass. <laughs> you guys can't even sing. Um, no, I'm not... A, I mean, I don't know. But as you know, I I don't know. My right, bar for that bar. type of stuff is pretty Your high. Your free speech so. absolutism. Right. Are you offended, Tammy? Can, I had no real objection to it. I mean, I, so it made, that particular thing made me slightly nervous because it was a very delicate time in terms of North Korea, U.S. relations. Not that there's ever like a really good time, but, (laughs) um, so I, you know, and obviously that led to like a lot of, that led, that actually had like diplomatic repercussions. And so in in that, in those sorts of situations i just get nervous but i don't feel no i don't i'm not like oh my god how could you insult the good name of general kim or whatever right right but right. but yeah I, but it's also like kind of racist you know but it's kind of racist it is a yeah racist. but also like it's sad he also like and, killed like, members of my family or his he's you know, not good right yeah 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 um but i was just yeah i mean and they also get like korean americans in on the joke so it's not just white actors making fun of for it. sure yeah um okay other thoughts on this? I mean, I think that our general sense is that they should probably be pretty careful here and, you know, not just bulldoze everything with the same formula that they have before. Um, but that full, you know, just full isolationism seems like a pipe dream in some ways, right? I mean, uh, it's in, almost terms like, of, in terms yeah. of Haiti, I'm talking about. Yeah, and there's almost like an right? ethical obligation uh, by these big powers, because those are the ones who kind of helped fucked up, fuck up the island for 200 years. Do you feel that way about Afghanistan? Um, yes, but what are, you, <laughs> what are you asking? Like in terms I'm in, of I'm in debate what? cross X mode of pointing out all your contradictions. <laughs> <laughs> I have to think about this one. <laughs> you only have a minute 30 left. Andy's lost. You're losing speaker points as we speak. What does um, have to do with anything, Jay? <laughs> <laughs> it has nothing to do with anything. I was just being a jerk. Um, okay. Any like uh, anything else? No, I'm, I'm glad we talked about it. I think it's an ongoing discussion that I'm sure we'll continue in the Discord. And if if listeners have ideas, you know, about like how to exercise better international solidarity, how to like make that concrete, I think a lot of people would be interested. We could talk about it more. I, I mean, I do think like this. And I don't know. If this is going to sound imperialist, but it does kind of sound to me like. <laughs> better integration between the United States, um, I guess in terms of like maybe migration or economically or culturally would be good in the sense that these are basically client states of the United States economically anyway. Um, And it'd be good. Yes, certainly like in terms of like asylum policy, for instance. So like, you know, there was a huge migratory path of Haitians down up through South America into Latin America into the U.S. during the Trump administration. A lot of the people who were being detained at the border were actually Haitian because of the instability Mm. there. So that's a very concrete example of like it is incumbent upon the U.S. to admit Haitians through emergency immigration protocols and like asylum refugee relief. Right. But we don't do that. You know, so I think there are like those are the kinds of things like we can agitate for here as like citizens, you know. But you also, of course, we don't want a situation where, like, that's the only path to survival there. Right, right. Like, you want to make, and this goes back to, like, you know, Puerto Rico also, whenever they have the right. extreme weather events, you want Puerto Rico itself to be 
right. a good, sustainable place to live People with good have, infrastructure, exactly. not just, you know, give them aid and tell them or make America the only, their only salvation, right? So right. Right. it seems like the whole region is like, if we're being realistic, already integrated economically, but in a very colonial way, right? With the sort of metropole and yes. the sort of sub, sub second class kind of islands. Uh, off the coast, and it, it would just kind of seem to me like, you know, if, if if economic integration is irreversible, then it would be good to like spread the wealth, um, as it were, and that would probably, you know, and ideally help help out, uh, you know, help everyone in theory. Yeah. But I don't know, racism is going to stop that from happening. Um, <laughs> On that note, <laughs> right? Speaking of racism, um, so say, there's a news report in the San Francisco Chronicle today and it was you know this is something that caught my eye just because I had done a bunch of reporting on it and it was uh, last Thursday London Breed came out who's the mayor of San Francisco and she said that uh, 28% of San Franciscans currently hospitalized with COVID-19 are black despite black people making up 5% of the city's population right and that the other people are, are broadly Latino and so hmm. this is was also true of every stage of the pandemic in major cities, right? The people who were affected the most were black and Latino people. Uh, it was true here on the West Coast. It was true on the East Coast. It was true in the Midwest. It was true almost everywhere, right? And that vaccine hesitancy is, is uh, you know, much higher in those communities. And there's a woman who was quoted who is part of the Rafiki Foundation, who is a you know, somebody that I talked to as well during my reporting who I, you know, I, I admire her work. And she was just saying that, like, you know, there's a variety of factors that go into this and uh, including, you know, just distrust of the government for understandable reasons, access. Right. Um, but mostly, you know, her real focus was distrust of the government. Right. Like access here in San Francisco is pretty decent. Right. Like you they they're trying ways in which a vaccine like you can get vaccinated. It's not so difficult. And. You know, I understand that there, for some people it is near impossible, but for the vast majority of people it, of any race, it should be accessible. And so my question was really like, are we talking in a lot of ways about vaccine hesitancy in the wrong way, right? Like, uh, I think right now, if you watch CNN or you read Twitter or you read mainstream uh, publications, you would essentially believe that, you know, there's like this gigantic mass of white people who are like, uh, you know, retrograde in all of their beliefs, right? They mostly live in the South, in places like Arkansas or whatever. And all they do is watch Fox News and Fox News and read Facebook and Facebook and Fox News poison yeah. their minds against a vaccine. That's not really the demographic in a lot of these places that is not vaccinated, you know? And I, I've found myself a little bit confused, but also like, you know, like a little bit worried about this because it does seem like uh, in cities, right, where a lot of these opinions are made, that that's not really what's going on. And I wonder why there is such a, you know, why why these conversations aren't happening at a larger scale and, um, and what can be done about it. Mm -hmm. Like, if it is minority populations, right, that are being, that are not getting vaccinated, in some places there's overwhelming attempts to get those populations vaccinate, like in San Francisco, for example, yeah. right? Um, I don't know, like what it, is it? Is like I, I worry about what it's going to end up as. But don't you think? I mean, that article is about SF. You don't think the 
situation in the U.S. South and Trump states would be totally different. Not totally different, somewhat different, where you would also you would have. No, uh, because if you look at if you look at uh, if you look at actual breakdowns, even in those states, mm-hmm. right, the vaccination rates of black and Latino populations lag behind white people. Okay. Right. Everywhere. And so it's this thing that <clears throat> happens where people basically talk about the South or red states and they just think they're all white people. Yeah. You know, which yeah. they really aren't. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, go to Mississippi, for example, you know, go to Alabama. Like those are, that's not all white people. And so by casting it that way, I wonder if it's like basically allowing for some sort of like, you know, well, those people, we can't even help them. So like, we're, let's not even talk about them, you know, like what, like we don't have to care about, uh, shutting Facebook off to save their lives and stuff like that. Yeah. Just thinking like, I think you're right though. The first half of what you're saying is right. That people are not perceiving it. They are perceiving it as like a white person, like a sort of Trump voting, Fox news watching. Right. White Which, by the way, is a lot of people too. Yeah, right? and sure. a lot of the blame should go to Fox <laughs> News. Like, I'm, so, yeah. yeah, right. So yeah. the jump from there to racist backlash, I'm not sure, because then are they going to perceive the unvaccinated people as the as the non-white people as the POC? But I well, mean, sure, to, to your point, London Breed is when London Breed is coming out and saying that. Sure. You know? Yeah. I'm looking at a New York Times article from last week about the unvaccinated people who are getting it. The the example they have is Arkansas, you know, you mentioned. And, you know, I don't know how these decisions are made, but all the photographs that they show are white patients. Um, So there is that perception that it is these sort of like old kind of boomer type distrust medicine, distrust the government. Um, People who are the unvaccinated people who are going to the hospital with the Delta variant and the the statistics are saying like basically every hospitalization like ninety nine point nine percent of hospitalizations are unvaccinated so it's like right right this clear split that's happening like we might like you said you know we talked about this at the very beginning we could all get COVID breakthroughs and we're probably fine you know like very right. mild symptoms and no symptoms so um, yeah I think I think the winter wave is coming and I think that's really scary to think about I don't really know what the but yeah the racist backlash part is I don't know that's you might be right. It's very, mm. It sounds very dystopian. Well, here's the, here's the reason why I think it will happen, because I think that at some point it will, you know, the conversation will have to, in cities, right? We'll have to swing to that. And um, I think it is very politically. First of all, I, I have two thoughts about this. The first is that I really find it like somewhat uh, distressing how quickly people are just like, well, if they don't want to get vaccinated, then they should, you know, then it's yeah. OK if they die. You know, and it's just like, oh. okay, well, you know, like, <laughs> it that seems like a very extreme thing to say, but we're in extreme times. I understand where you're coming from, but like a white boomer person who's been fed through Fox News and Facebook, like is not the most sympathetic person. But by the way, if that person gets COVID in your community and it is like a little hub for it, then that also affects you too, just as much yeah. as it affects you if the person down the street from you is not vaccinated of any race, you know? And the second part of it is that I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I do find it like slightly distasteful to that type of attitude, like not even distasteful. I just think it's like also impractical, right? And it and it is sort of setting up this like incredible two Americas type of reality, which is already our reality. Let's be honest. But like you know, like it's really sort of enforcing along biological lines, which I think is generally a bad idea. Generally, <laughs> history shows that that's a bad idea. I am really just worried about this sort of 
you know, when this comes out, you know, and it will come out, it will be weaponized by certain people. And the trigger point is definitely going to be the reopening of schools, right? And then I think that in people's minds, it will lead to a lot of types of, and this happens throughout the pandemic. It's happened everywhere where it's just like, oh, well, I don't want to live with these people because they've endangered my life, you know, and I don't want to live with these people because they've endangered my life. I just don't understand how this doesn't lead to like a deep segregating, segregationist like type of mindset with people. I mean, I think, I think to an extent you're right. Mm -hmm. I also think like those worst case scenarios have been kind of from the very beginning. And I think, you know, given, you know, there's extreme examples of like backlash against Asians, against, um, you know, black and Latino groups at various points. But I think for the most part, people have been pretty decent about not making it super racialized and or or not victim blaming um, so much as talking about the need for more outreach to poor or non-white like neighborhoods or counties and things like that so far I I, I think they've been horrific about victim blaming when the victim when the person who dies is like a white you know yeah like a poor white person right that's what but that's what I'm saying like it seems like the government especially is very careful about not uh putting the blame on the more marginalized groups um if that makes sense right right Mm -hmm. so yeah but I and I, I I am I don't know I haven't studied this either but I just I do I am more optimistic along Tammy's lines of like more messaging by groups that are embedded in those communities could work um, and but you know you might be right that it's reached a saturation point it does seem anecdotally in Philadelphia the Black Doctors Consortium did a lot of was mm-hmm. kind of spearheading a lot of this stuff in Philadelphia there's a lot of talk constantly in the Inquirer and in just all sorts of like media outlets about the need for outreach to the black neighborhoods or the you know the, the poor neighborhoods in the city so and it seems like it's been a pretty successful so far but um you know i mean i don't know i, I guess you don't want to get too fatalistic right and say it is really about the stubbornness of their minds or the stubbornness of their I mean, well, we don't... no but that's what i yeah though that's what i don't that's what i think is wrong you right. know but then what is like, what is the explanation? I don't that, think it's a cultural explanation. Right. So what do you yeah. think is the explanation? Well, I don't know because I'm not an epidemiologist, but you know, right. when I was doing all that research in cultural in uh, you know, in community-based testing, mm-hmm. right? Uh, in San Francisco and the Bay Area and and all the UCSF epidemiologists who had sort of spearheaded this type of approach in Africa around Ebola. Um, and we're bringing it to, which is a very effective program, you know, and really should have been the model for a lot of things across the country. Their concern when it came to vaccinations was that they weren't getting started early enough, right? That there was a huge barrier to, to climb. Now, I would say that at this point, it's been like seven months or something like that. And so maybe it is too early, but like uh, the, you know, for the vaccine to not, to be effective in any sort of way and not just have this Delta variant run through entire populations, It's not like they have that much more time, you know? And so yeah. my fear is that it's just going to lead to like a massive outbreak in those communities, right? And that um, I think we're starting, I don't think it's a massive outbreak in those communities yet, but like when the numbers are lower, then the out, a massive outbreak actually doesn't need to have huge numbers to be a massive outbreak within that specific community, if that makes sense, yeah. right? If the population of unvaccinated right. people right. is 10,000 people instead of 150,000 people, then a 5,000 person 
within one community is like a huge outbreak, right? Yeah. And that actually probably is enough to shut down schools. The numbers are pretty bad the last two weeks, and that's that's right. what led to like the, all these press conferences and right in California, t- in LA too. Yeah. You know, I don't know. It's 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 uh, I I'm just curious what you're you know. I mean, I think on this show, we have a shared skepticism around like biological or cultural arguments, but I think some of the medical skepticism is not so much that and is is truly like historical, you know, yeah. acknowledgement, in fact. Yeah. I mean, I think I totally take your point. I think that, you know, earlier on in the pandemic, when we were kind of talking about these racial disparities and like with Merlin, you know, we were th- th- talking also about people's job distributions, right, as essential workers in those communities and stuff. Obviously, that is like the race income piece. Here it'll be more complicated because like you can cross reference that against like vaccination rates, right? So I don't, yeah, I mean, I I hope this kind of racial apocalyptic thing doesn't come to yeah. pass. And, um, but I, yeah, I guess to me, it seems like, like from your reporting and other stuff I've read of the Bay Area, it seems a lot farther along in community outreach than in other places. So, right, yeah. right. you know, you guys might, they might have reached saturation there, but not elsewhere. Yeah, I don't. I, I I'm not saying. But I, I know I, you're just offering it as a case right. study. I'm basically <laughs> saying that I think that these community efforts are the key to all of this. Sure. Stuff, you yeah. Know? And but I think that when, uh, I think that that like it's just we're at a point where it's sort of an emergency, but and that like we're kind of also at a point where people's patience about this is over That's you know too. and it's just That's like problem, well yeah. if they're not going to get i mean, i don't know how like this is this is really what sparked it all right it's just how many people i've seen whether on cable news or on social media or in op-eds or whatever basically be like well if you're not vaccinated then screw you you know like really? uh, like yeah, wow. tons of that stuff. That's you know, like up. I don't have any sort of sympathy for people who aren't vaccinated at this point. And in their head, right, they're thinking about some yokel with a Confederate flag, right, and that uh, that that is like driving a giant pickup truck and like running over protesters. That's who they think of when they say that, right? <laughs> but that's not the reality of it, and that's yeah. what's upsetting to me, yeah. right? Like it's not just those people, right? A lot of them, a lot of them are those people, right? But it's not just those people. And like, first of all, as I said before, I find it odd to not extend sympathy to those people as well. <laughs> they are human you know? beings. But yeah, they are human beings after all. And I do think that any the foundation of any sort of you know, left program is to have that type of sympathy for those people as well. Yeah. But like, uh, I'm just worried what happens when like the when, you know, the when that drops. Right. And we have to face that it's not just those people. Yeah. And I just I don't know. I'm terrified yeah. of it yeah. because mm-hmm. uh, it's going to happen. And maybe, uh, and I don't know, I don't know. I, I can't even imagine. Like here, even here, the school thing got so bad that like people were like, you know, starting like little gangs, parents, you know, yeah, and like putting social media pressure on the unions and everything like that. And man, if that if they shut down, if schools have to shut down again, it's gonna, I, I it's like gonna be borderline civil is it, war. I think. Is it possible though that in the Bay, I know like private universities and probably public universities are now mandating vaccines the ucs did right yeah so don't you think that would be that could also be extended downwards to like high schools and middle i guess elementary schools might be too tough you know is it 12 and over that's the issue right now yeah i think it's very going to be very difficult to ask like the parent of a 13 year old but they or a 12 year old that they have to vaccinate their child yeah they do that's like the place where it's most has most right but those are much more established established established, yeah. yeah 
Um, like I, I don't look. I, if the vaccine was available for four year olds, I would vaccinate my kid yeah, tomorrow. Totally. Yeah. But it's not, and uh, and yet I don't think that there are people who. I think that the people who say that they wouldn't vaccinate their twelve year old. I don't think they're that very far from the political spectrum from me or you or Tammy. Right. Yeah. You know? Like, I think there's a lot of people who would say no yeah. for that. You yeah. know, and yeah. I, I don't think that it would work. But I don't know how you can expect your unvaccinated child to go to school, even at the current rates, you know, and, and, and not worry about, I guess it would have to stay masked and, you know, yeah. I think require all the teachers, require all the teachers and staff to be vaccinated. Um, we should also yeah. mention, you know, like, the rest of the world is getting I know. torn apart. By I know, I know. Well, we, we don't have enough time for the rest of the world today. And we acknowledge you. Well, the, yeah, well, but it's, it's like the, it's the it's same, bad. it's the same, it's, it's, par- same it's parallel, right? It's like, yeah, well, it's not the same thinking. It's like they don't have vaccines in general in right. Asia. Right now, it's, it's the Delta variant, which, you know, we don't start in South Asia. <laughs> and it, and it's like, it's, it's spread to Southeast Asia and Africa and like, places that are closer it hasn't yet hit latin america but that's also coming you know so like the winter wave it's going to hit the united states it's probably going to hit the rest of the world or it's already hitting the rest of the world and maybe new variants are going to emerge after that also there was a report i saw that china which has used the more traditional vaccine and basically vaccinated everyone in china are Mm -hmm. starting to reconsider maybe they should also do mrna because they are realizing the traditional vaccine doesn't work against the delta variant And of course, Pfizer came out and said, like, uh, you need a booster shot every year, which may be true. Yeah, but like... Of course, that's what they said. (laughs) I don't know. It's very depressing to think, like... It's like the Chris Rock joke about pharmaceutical companies, you know, on the comeback, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I was getting fitted for a tuxedo in in Oakland last because I had to go to this wedding. And I was sitting there watching the news with the guy who was, like, measuring me. Um, the local news and they were talking about that how like in Israel they're going to start giving people third shots and I was just like god yeah. please yeah. Like, yeah. I can't handle this but that's yeah. where I understand people's frustrations and them popping off and saying things about you know unvaccinated people on because everyone's tired of this yeah. you know yeah. and everyone's exhausted yeah I know well that and when I just want to clarify that. when I said it's the same kind of thinking what I meant is that I think there's this, an impulse in the US to think about like who is deserving or not deserving of vaccines mm-hmm. and i think like we don't like generally we don't care that the rest of the world isn't getting what they need right yeah right. um so anyway i and i i do think that there's some of that in some of the liberal responses about you know the inability to talk about minority populations that are not vaccinated i do think it's like oh well you know they can work you know we don't have to care about them, right? Like, right. I do think there's some of that there. Yeah. But I also think a lot of it is just discomfort, which, you know, yeah. I don't know. Um, all right, listener questions is our last segment. We have three from, uh, we have three questions. They're all pretty good, I think. Is there anything else you guys want to say about this stuff? Sorry, I felt like I just needed to rant about it because it's been driving me crazy. No, I think it's and, uh, a topic. Yeah, no, and, that's, I don't have anything more on COVID. Yeah. And I, uh, the school, uh, man. I don't know. I mean, I basically am of the mind that they can't shut down schools next fall. I think, they can't. I think as long I as just, teachers are vaccinated. I think it's going to lead to like a basically a new like a like the biggest culture war that you've ever seen in your life, and parents are going to go batshit crazy. 
and um, I don't think it's possible. Um, and I, you know, I don't know. Maybe they still should, but I, I don't know. Good luck. That's <laughs> what I'll say. All right. Listener questions. The first is from Brenda via email. She says, I'm a listener from Texas. I'm a teacher in a red state. So today's conversation about critical race theory bans from June. This is from our episode back in June resonated with me. I'm also learned by how much traction Chris Rufo, he's the guy on Twitter who, you know, goes and talks to Congress, has gained. I wanted to ask what books you've been reading lately and what your personal favorites are. Uh, uh, I've been mostly reading about the NBA Finals, so I don't really have any Books about the NBA Finals? <laughs> I would say, uh, but... How many just, books about the NBA Finals? No, not just books, just like, reading in general. Breaks of the game. The internet. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, but we did, after our episode, we, I, you know, I think someone shared with us this article, this long feature piece about Chris Rufo. Uh, right. So we can Ben Wallace Wells wrote it. Yeah, it was really interesting. Yeah. It really resonates, perhaps most with Tammy and me, because he he's a very identifiable. <laughs> he's yeah, it's very identifiable P and W type. Who's like that means Pacific Northwest, Pacific Northwest like libertarian type that like no taxes and you know that anyway. It's very very very. Is that a type? Yeah, I think so. I think he's in a state without income tax. Yeah. Anyway, so he, he make the, it, yeah. him and this anti-CRT thing became more legible after reading that profile. So maybe we'll I'll recommend reading that. Yeah, it was it was it was good. It you know he has an interesting past, and yeah, I'm also surprised by how effective he's been. Now I am I didn't think this two weeks ago, but you know I was talking to this guy on Twitter who um, I think his handle is Baristotle. Um, he's like an <laughs> academic and he was just like this is all going to burn over and I kind of actually I thought he was totally wrong but I think he's right at this point um, I think it'll just cycle I, over to the next yeah, moral panic I, yeah too. right but I, I do think that it's very difficult to implement these things by you know by, uh, by law right and I think that the laws are going to like maybe stay in the books but it's just going to be one of those weird laws that you know people are like did you know that there was a law about this oh, like, I, I, I just See, think now you're more of Andy's you can't like wash a donkey episode. in a bathtub or something like that right but I do think it's done a lot of damage I think uh, you know to the psyche of teachers Yeah. you know and I think that it's done a lot of it's uh, sort of legitimated a lot of really really stupid bad faith types of you know arguments yeah. You know, but um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, Tammy, I agree with you. I think it's just going to, they're going to just find the next thing and just hop to that one. Um, but that's okay. So Andy avoided the question because he doesn't <laughs> read books. He just reads no. uh, transcripts of the Nate Duncan show on uh, the <laughs> Nate Duncan podcast. I, I uh, print them out and read them as a book. Yeah, so. Tam, Tam, Tammy. <laughs> Do you guys have books? Like, I think Brenda is maybe also asking if there right. are books that are kind of CRT adjacent that were important for us in our development or that we have returned to or looked at oh. recently. Um, I I wanted to offer something that's not academic, but um, I liked Claudia Rankin's Citizen a lot. And I think like in, you know, it's a book of sort of prose poetry that does racial analysis. In that book, she does a lot of really interesting sort of like cultural, like criticism basically that like unpacks racial dynamics in like, for instance, the way that um, Serena Williams is like analyzed and presented by sports commentators and these sorts of like very kind of high profile cultural moments. And I think that sort of book is a really good way of 
kind of getting under what we mean by CRT. What is the value of these sort of racial analyses? Um, so I, w- I wanted to recommend that one from a few years ago. Hmm. Yeah. I let me think. Uh, what did I read that was? I don't know. It's been so long, you know. I don't know. I what a like everyone. What are the foundational texts? I'm sure I read them all in high school, college, high school, college. Like Kimberly Crenshaw and I've only um, met, read their law review articles. Not yeah, I think yeah. It, I think it's mostly law no review articles. Book, right? It's mostly mm-hmm. collections. There's a reader. Guess, um, right. Yeah. And uh, I would read. Um, I don't know. Not to not to avoid. I'm just gonna read the text of the question and what books I've been reading recently. Yeah. yeah. Let's see. I've read. I'm reading that. I don't know who read it. I'm reading this big biography on Cornelius Vanderbilt. That one's pretty good. Oh, interesting. Um, oh, really? I'm Why? reading a biography about <laughs> oh, John, a book Monopoly of criticism politics. about John Coltrane, which is also very good. That's great. John Coltrane basically has you know had more written about him than anybody in history or any certainly any <laughs> jazz musician in history maybe Louis Armstrong has had more written about him um, but I think John Coltrane in a second just because it was the middle like it's basically like what was jazz is basically the question is processed and litigated through John Coltrane right so Stanley Crouch and like Wynton Marsalis have their uh, take on that which is much more you know pretty conservative in its boundaries and then Maria Baraka has his ideas about it, yeah. you know, and then uh, and then there are people who go all the way and say like, you know, this was like the first liberatory music, and then there are people who say that's ridiculous. Jazz is notes, you know, and it's I don't know. I find the whole thing interesting. I actually don't even have yeah. a take on it. I just like reading the people's arguments about it. Um, all right, so from Daffo Dilly in Discord. I have a quick vocab question. You guys sometimes mention, quote, the academy. I assume this was another term for academia in general, but it seems like there might be something more to it. Is it a national club for professors or something? Andy? Uh, Andy, are you in the academy club? There are, yeah, no, there's a lot of national clubs. <clears throat> They're not very, um, you don't want to be part of, you don't want to be a member of them, though. I, th- I think the difference between the academy and academia, I was actually thinking about this because uh, I had never thought about this for, uh, in my life. I think the academy tends to be framed like, the ivory tower which is to say to Mm. differentiate the way like the content of ideas and the way people talk in the real world versus in the academy that's really helpful actually and i think academia is actually referring to the industry of Mm -hmm. being uh, a professor or being a grad student so when you say like when you're talking about academia you would probably say something like you know in academia you have to get like postdocs and grants and look for jobs Mm -hmm. and the academy i'm almost tempted to say is like kind of a anti-intellectual or you know like a, almost not a right wing but sort of a sort of the way people would talk about like political correctness back in the day like well in the real world we all know you know whatever about race and sex and class but in the academy they take it they talk about it in this really different way you know and they use different mm-hmm. vocabulary and so on so i think that's the difference i think academia is actually the name of an industry like like being a member of the academia is like being a being someone who like is a professor or, or and so on um and the academy mm. tends to yeah crazy i just use them i just use them totally interchangeably i think i i mean i never thought about it before i saw this question but i think that's kind of the difference otherwise why have two words well it's like you know how people say like the united states and then some people say the republic you know? <laughs> but i think i think that i don't know is there a word for like the fourth no, the fourth estate like what is there a word for journalism that's 
like three different synonyms for being a journalist or media versus journalism. Yeah, stuff like that. Um, Is there yeah, a distinction? Media, a journalism. Distinction? No, there's no yeah. distinction. Um, no, no. There's okay. a lot of pejorative terms, but I, <laughs> I think the... what you point out that was interesting just in terms of the way that, yeah, the, the kind of distancing mechanism in like, you know, the academy. Yeah. Like what? And I would never, that... I would never like announce I'm part of the academy. Like I'm proud of it. <laughs> I I, I'm part of the, my name's Andy and I'm <laughs> proud you academy member. Out of my cocktail but you all would say like, I'm in journalism. I'm in media. Uh, no. N- yeah. I just say I'm, I'm a writer. Very reluctantly. Right. I write, um, I write for a living. No, I would never say that. I just <laughs> say I'm a reporter. Um, not that I, I'm almost never asked, so it doesn't matter. You don't say um, I'm a media worker. No, I don't. Yeah, I'm a I'm part an international of the journalism proletariat. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Last question is from So Long Lillian in our Discord. Something I've been thinking about recently. Are there any stats on intermarriage between Asian American subgroups? My Korean Chinese cousin married a Filipino is one example. I wonder if one way to measure the cohesiveness or lack thereof of, quote, Asian America would be to track those unions. I know the hosts are all about disaggregating Asians in America, but not all of them are staying in their insular communities. What does that mean for the next generation of Asian Americans who are not visibly mixed, but do come from two plus different cultures? It's a very interesting question. Um, You know, and actually, you know, I think that this is true. I think there is more of that going on. Um, You know, uh, one of the hosts of our podcast, my cousin, too, other people, right, Andy? <laughs> yeah, and no, I don't. I was just like <laughs> the Sorry, laboratory experiment for this is Hawaii. Hawaii has right, right. three or yeah. four generation Japanese, Chinese, Filipino, indigenous people. You know, so we do have some statistics for you. So yeah. long, Lillian. First is that since the 1980s, among Asian Americans, interracial marriages have been on the decline. While Asian interethnic marriages among members with heritage of a different Asian nation have been on the rise. Um, over time, two, uh, third plus generation Asians show no significant change in interracial marriage with whites, but declines in intergenerational marriage with first or second generation Asians. Second generation Asians, on the other hand, have become more likely to marry first generation Asians and less likely to marry whites. <laughs> it's colonialism. <laughs> and this is from a Pew there's like this Pew study called like the rise of Asian America that's basically like responsible for almost all the stats on Asian Americans I found this out while doing my book and (laughs) um, you know it does show that like I think it was 2013 but you know in 2008 between 2008 and 2010 the percentage of Asian people who were married to a non-Asian person was 29% and I think 6% were married to other Asians. So even if those numbers are on the rise, it's not particularly common, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That uh, even while marriages to non-Asians are declining and marriages to other Asians are increasing, it's still a, you know, it's magnitudes larger people marrying non-Asians still. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's our answer. I see. Um, so the, you, and just to clarify, so the first thing you read was by Kelly Chong. The second was by these researchers, Chan. How do you pronounce Q-I-A-N, Andy? Q-I-O-T-I-N. Chan. Chan, okay. Um, and then the third thing Jay read was Pew. But oh, that's interesting, Jay. So, and and you're talking, is it interracial marriage with whites or is it interracial marriage with blacks or It Latinos doesn't say. Or okay. It doesn't say. Um, but I do think that intermarriage with white people is the most common. Yeah. 
which makes sense, you know. We're in a country with a lot of white people. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Uh, there's also, uh, you know, um, if you go to, if you're upwardly mobile, then you're going to probably spend more time around white people. You know? Yeah. But you also have to break um, this down to parts of the country where there are lots of Asian diasporic, you know, right. waves. Now, yeah. what about, so let's answer, now that we have said all of that, let's answer Lillian's actual question, which is, what is, if it is increasing in some ways, does it, does it show that perhaps, you know, Asian America is more complicated than what we say? Or what I say, I'll, I'll <clears throat> <laughs> Well, you don't think there is Asian America, or you don't think there's a politics, right? Yeah, I, and I don't think that this necessarily means there's a politics. Right, just in like just, life in general, right? You just and think I, that this is this shows like comfort, or what? Um, no, I just think that people are actually socialized in this sort of way. Yeah. Right. So if you live in San Jose, for example, um, you're gonna go to, or if you live in Mountain View now, or if you live in the peninsula. Chances are, if you go to a public high school, that you're going to be around a ton of Asian people. Actually, yeah. probably more than white people, yeah. you know. And um, a lot of those are going to be from Vietnam. Some of them are going to be from China. Some are going to be from Korea. Some are going to be from uh, Cambodia, wherever, right? And I, I, I think it's just sort of diasporas kind of pull together. Yeah. Right? Um, but I think that the significant part about this that they're talking about is that this is really happening around second and third generation yeah. people yeah and I so think... the question is like has the striving generation that intermarries right as a i don't want to say anything that gets me canceled here but you know we all know what the argument is right like uh that that part of upward mobility is marrying into the dominant culture right now yeah. if you are arguing that by the second third generation now in 2020 that Asians are rich enough that and are established enough that they also can be seen as dominant culture if they're second or third generation. I don't know. Maybe there's something to that, right? Oh, I that's in, yeah. I thought I thought what I she was saying was yeah. Sorry. No, like no. Being, I was being just Asian saying, American is no longer exactly. Korean specific or Chinese specific. You're just Asian American. Yeah, that's you what watch K dramas, read Chinese food, you eat sushi, and exactly. uh, it's uh, undifferentiated mass of Asian things that you consume and i think i mean like, that's among second and third generation <clears throat> right. or just like as right. go, moving forward fourth the longer fourth, you're seventh, here seventh, right right yeah which makes sense i mean i think also um i was reading some literary criticism recently out of like east asian literary criticism and the author was saying that she thinks it's unfortunate that we've kind of gotten at, so that so like if you think about like the way that literary literary construction used to work in east asia it was like thinking about it like sinospherically mm -hmm. because like china was the dominant kind of literary and artistic influence in that entire region and so you could kind of make that assessment and then in this kind of nation state phase everything's become so like atomized mm -hmm. and she was kind of arguing against that as you know she's a korean critic but saying like it's unfortunate that we're kind of talking just about like the silo of like Korean literature mm -hmm, that in mm -hmm, fact right. you need to think about it sinospherically. And I think, um, I mean, <laughs> yeah, that resonated right. with, <laughs> Hey Andy, 
Andy, the chauvinist. Um, but yeah. we, you know, I think. Andy's uh, like, all food is Chinese food. <laughs> <laughs> all I, over the world. Where did ramen world. come from? <laughs> I'm just asking. I had this, where did ramen I had this like, I actually remember this during the kimchi conversation, whether or not kimchi was Chinese. I remember I was playing poker with this guy once, like many, many years ago. And he was basically, he was like the most Chinese supremacist person I've ever met. And he was basically arguing that all food is Chinese food. <laughs> like Literally the, like every the, kind the of pasta, food. The pasta, like pasta, yeah. like you know, he's like, "Where do you think the idea for pizza came from?" You know, <laughs> was he also you know, like, even the, the foods from the Americas? It's Landbridge cousin. A taco is just yeah. a mushu chicken. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. oh man. dumplings. Yeah. That guy was so unpleasant. He, he sounds was just really such awful. an asshole. Yeah, he's just like yeah. he's like he's like I can't believe they. Oh, everybody owes so much. We're the oldest culture you know and it's like oh my god <laughs> jesus christ i think you know? the africans would have something stop to aapi I hate that um, I have nothing oh yeah okay but let me just finish the thought which is just to say that like i think yeah i was kind of going more in andy's direction where like i do think there are certain like comfort things like a second generation immigrant might just feel like comfortable being around another second generation immigrant or a third generation immigrant and like share certain of these like cultural norms, even if, because they're, they don't have to necessarily be like so attached to their nationalistic or like geographic cultural norm, but the general things that sort of like are shared oh, yeah, across sure. the region. Right. I, so I agree with that. I think, yeah, I don't, it's funny that I don't know. I think like I never was taught or I don't think I ever absorbed this thing of like, yeah, you you marry into like a white family to like, I know a lot of this is kind of operating subconsciously anyway, but um, yeah, I think it's more just comfort and like acceptability from your family and stuff like that too. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, if we're talking about two extremes, right? One extreme is on one end is everyone stays within their own tiny little, not well tiny, but their own group. And yeah. then the other extreme is everyone's just mixed and looks alike and intermarries yeah. and nobody can tell the difference. I don't think it'll ever get to that second extreme, you know? Uh, but I do think because I because like the Asian diaspora is very active and there is like, you know, actually, <laughs> well, you know, there's, there's there's there are still like constant injections of like new immigrants, you know, and there is like a real connection and a lot of the entertainment and the food that kind of we bemoan as kind of distinguishing Asian culture it actually comes from Asia. So I don't think there's ever going to be mm -hmm. a moment of being cut off from those national origins. But, you know, again, like if you go to Hawaii, I think people are vaguely yeah. aware of like, oh, your last name means you're Korean, your last name means you're Japanese. But <clears throat> as generations go by, people are just like, whatever, we all go to school together, yeah. we all just hang out together. Um, people are vaguely aware, you know, of like where everyone's family comes from. But it doesn't, it means less and less as the generations go by, I think. Um, right. And yeah. right now, Asian American I culture so. in that way, the way that Lillian is describing it is mostly like something that happens in schools, right? Because that's where it, those communities pull together in those places. Oh, right. Like the Asian right. friend group. Yeah. Right. Or where people Asian meet. fraternities or, yeah. um, or, you know, boba culture. That's all stuff that happens at like schools. You know, yeah. Like the UCLA, UCLA, A, 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 A. So many A's. UCLA with five A's after it. Um, yeah, that would be, uh, that's where most of it happens, I think. And um, look, I've been very critical of the depth of that, but I don't know. Like, I, I, people really, I think that people think that I, th that I am saying that Asian people don't hang out together, which is not what I'm saying. No, yeah. <laughs> I don't need to. I don't need to re. I don't need to relitigate it on our own podcast. Um, all right. Well, 
Thank you for listening to the show. Uh, we do this every week. Sometimes we do it twice a week. You can su- help support the show at Substack at goodbye.substack.com, or you can contribute to our Patreon. It's basically the same thing. Both are about $5 a month, and you get access to bonus episodes, and you can join our very active Discord server. How's that going? I've, I've had to check out for a week just because I've been traveling so much. Is it still as active as usual? Yeah. full of hot conversations and uh very fun topics and you, honestly a lot of what we talk like if you want to if you want to argue with us <laughs> then you should join our discord server because you know people do not hold back you know yeah they, uh and they're criticism and it's fine i actually you know i i enjoy it i feel like our thinking should be challenged a lot on here because it's a podcast and you know it's not uh, a lot of our opinions are, you know, in the process of being format, uh, formed, and that's what the podcast is. Um, what else am I supposed to say? Oh, you can email us at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com, um, or you can reach out to us on Twitter at TTSG pod, Andy and Tammy. Uh, yeah, thanks for swinging by. <laughs> See you guys in person. The virtual yeah. space. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. Talk soon. Bye.